Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I bring greetings from my church, Fresh Life Church in Montana. Uh, when I was last year on a Sunday, was talking about starting a Bible study. And it was, the church didn't exist. It was just kind of a dream to go with a couple of friends and start teaching the Bible. And our first Sunday, we had about a dozen people show up. And then in the past year and a half, the church has grown into a, a healthy body of about 700 adults. And it's been just a, a great year watching God do a work. Yeah, absolutely. And... Um, that's fruit to your account as you guys have prayed and supported many of you, the work that God's done and sent people up there, and it's been awesome. But uh, at our church, we're going through a series of messages called Sex and the Scriptures. And it's a study verse by verse through the Song of Solomon. And I'm going to share a message from that series. So could you open your Bibles to the Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Throughout this series, it's been our, our heart to ask the question, how does our sexuality intersect with our Christianity? And it's not as though, you know, you have to uh, choose one or the other, as though either you have to choose between the Christian life and the good sex life. In fact, the most satisfying, the, the most deeply, you know, pleasurable and enjoyable sex life comes through, in, you know, accepting God's plans for sex in marriage. And the truth is God cares very much for our relationships. And it's really spoken to throughout the whole Bible, but uh, he's given us an entire book dedicated to the subject, the Song of Solomon which J. Vernon McGee calls the, the most neglected book in the Bible. And many times preachers don't even talk about this issue, but when they do, it's just a thunder down from Mount Sinai, thou shalt not, which of course is important, but leaves us asking the question, so what should we do then? And God does have a lot to say. And this book is a, a manual on Christian love, sex, romance, and dating. And, and, uh, and that's what we're going to talk about today, the subject of Christian dating. Now, before any of you married people mentally check out, okay, doesn't apply to me. I'm done with those days. I have three reasons why you should hang for the ride. Number one, because when we're married, we're supposed to continue to date our mate. Number two, uh, because you have children, grandchildren, friends, and coworkers who are going to be going through these you know, turbulent waters, and you can help guide them with this information. And number three, quite frankly, all those single people out there have had to sit through plenty of married messages, and so this is a little bit of payback for them. <clears throat> but I've entitled this morning's message, The Right Way to Date. The Right Way to Date. And that, of course, would, would suggest that there's a way to date that's wrong. And I would say that that's the case. And I, you know, if you think about it, our cultural version of dating, the way it's done in our society, is really a lot like a bunch of mini marriages. You know, you have two people, they're attracted to each other, and so they, they get together, they hook up, and uh, really what they do is they prematurely give to each other what was intended to be reserved for a husband and a wife. And, and they're giving and taking from each other these things. And, and, and it's, 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 you know, it's the, the, these mini marriages, they come with maximum problems. And it's little wonder why after years of attaching themselves to, in a, what sex is a lifetime bond to a person, and then when they get tired of each other or someone else better comes along, tearing that away, coming together in a lifetime bond, tearing it away, little wonder why people move into an actual marriage that doesn't last either. It's because they've got used to enjoying the perks of the marriage relationship without the price tag of a lifelong commitment. Well, many Christians have backlashed against this and, and sort of rejected the notion of dating entirely. 
and said we should go back to what's called courting, which up until even the early 1900s was the way that dating was done in our, our, our country. And, and how courting works basically is you like a girl, young man, so you're the suitor and you want to approach a dating relationship with this girl. But before you get to date her, you get to date her dad and, uh, and you get a, win his approval, win his favor. And if, if, if you do, then you get permission to come and, and enjoy time with the girl under the supervision of the home. And, uh, and it's always moving towards marriage. And this, this, uh, this whole concept was recently repopularized by Joshua Harris in his book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which I say to amen. I am all for rejecting our culture's, you know, disposable, destructive, instant gratification, fast food form of relationships that leads inevitably to heartache, grief, and causes us to miss out on God's best for our lives. I will say, however... Whatever label you want to call it, call it dating, call it courting, call it going steady, whatever branding you put on it, there is still to be dealt with the period in between uh, when you're just friends and when you're a fiancé. There's that period between attraction and engagement, and engagement. And whatever you want to call that, this message is on that phase. Because that's where song, uh, the Song of Solomon shows us today that Solomon and his beloved are. Uh, they had been attracted to each other early in chapter 1. They, they liked the way each other looked. There was a physical chemistry. And I, we can't you know, underestimate the importance of this, that we should be attracted to them. But that shouldn't be all that's there. It shouldn't just all be looks. It shouldn't just all be spark and fizzle and pop. It should be something more of depth. And, and that was the case. Solomon, who was the king in Israel, and we know, of course, Solomon failed tremendously later on in life. But God chose to use this early first encounter he had as a period to highlight it, put it in the Bible, and say, this is how it's done. And of course, he failed later on and, and learned his lessons. But he fell for a simple, humble farm girl. And he saw that she was beautiful, yes, but her looks went deeper than her skin. She feared the Lord. And she as well saw that he was handsome, but he had character. He had committed to live before God. And so this is important that we take note of that before we date, we should have a standard of who we're willing to date and maybe more importantly, who we're not willing to date. We have to consider the who of dating before we ever talk about the how of dating. Otherwise, we might end up, you know, dating someone who's not headed the same direction in the relationship that we are. You know, of course, we, we shouldn't date someone who's a non-believer. The Bible calls marrying a non-believer being unequally yoked together. Well, you might go, I would never marry a non-Christian. But we're just dating. We're just having fun. And, and, but here's what happens. One's going to pull the other to their level. And sadly, it's far more often the case that the Christian gets dragged down. So I would say you shouldn't date someone who you wouldn't be willing to marry. I would also say you should wait to date until marriage is in the not-too-distant future. To date with no plan for getting married eventually is to all but guarantee you're going to fall into sexual sin. Let me say that again. To date aimlessly is to all but guarantee you will fall into sexual sin. And so I say wait until marriage is in the, the future, in the not too distant future. At least, otherwise, I would ask you this question. What's the point? You go, well, to have fun, to get to know each other, to see who I'm compatible with. And I would say you can do that as friends. You can do that hanging out in groups. 
I'm saying you can still go to school dances and still have crushes and still enjoy being young and still go out to coffee with, you know, a person one-on-one, but save that exclusive dating relationship for when it's meant to be a track that leads you towards engagement and towards marriage eventually. Well, that being said, this couple, we're going to observe three components to their godly dating relationship. And the first is respect. There should be respect. A cherishing, a valuing. You should honor the other person and esteem them. Look at Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 9. Solomon speaking, says, I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. In case you are wondering, yes, he did just compare her to a horse. (laughs) And I can hear you now. Oh, yeah, really respectful there. But notice before he, he does that, he calls her his love. He says, I've compared you, my love. This is the first of nine times he'll call her that. And then he tries to show how much he loves her. And so he compares her to the most valuable thing he owned, his horse. In our culture, not a great compliment. Uh, To say someone has a horse head, not nice. To compare your spouse to the old gray mare, she ain't what she used to be. Not exactly a lovely description. But in that day, a horse wasn't a beast of burden, but it was a, a, a cherished companion, a prized possession. The, you know, Solomon loved horses. He had you know, 12,000 horsemen. But the, the one horse above all of his collection was the, the filly from Pharaoh's chariots. Now you see, when Pharaoh would go out to battle, his chariots would be led. They would all be pulled by stallions. But at the, the front of the charge would be a white filly, a female horse. So Solomon's saying, you are one in a million. You're without value. You're irreplaceable and without equal. It's not like, well, we break up and I'll just say next. And the next person steps into line. It'd be like in our culture saying, you're like a rare and exotic Lamborghini. Some of you ladies are going, nope, still not working for me. Some of the guys are going, whoa, that's pretty intense, you know. But Solomon's heart is in the right place. You know, this was a prized possession. As well, it indicated how he wanted to take care of her. If you've ever been around someone who has an expensive horse, I mean, there's, there's the right blankets and the right stall and the right hay and the right shoes and the right trailer to pull them around in. And it's no different with, with us in cars. You see a guy with a nice car, you, know, you ever try and eat in his car, you'll be walking down the road. You try and open a bag of Cheetos, you know, and rubbing your hand on the leather and stuff. He's not loaning it to people, you know, to move. Oh, yeah, you can just tie your mattress to the top of the Porsche. It'll be perfect, you know. You know, when they park at the mall, these guys, they park like three miles from the entrance because they don't want a door dinging in the, the side of it. All the wives are going, can we please park somewhere near the vicinity of the, of the mall would be nice. They, they have it in their garage, wiping it with a microfiber cloth. They never park next to sprinklers. But then you see the way some of these guys treat their wives or girlfriends. And it's the relational equivalent of how they would treat an old beat up pickup truck. Oh, this old thing, she may not look like much, but she gets the job done. Tell you what. And the wives are going, yeah, I feel really loved. Wow. Solomon's saying, you are no regular horse. You're the finest filly of them all. You're my mare. And he continues, verse 10. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. Your your neck with chains of gold. We will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. So he's praising her beauty. Um, now Now she speaks, responding to him. Verse 12. While the king is at his table... My spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. 
Now, in that day, a woman's most valuable possession would be her bottle of perfume. And in her case, it was a brand called Myrrh, very expensive and hard to get. And they would keep the bottle at home, but they had a necklace that had some sort of a diffusing uh, device, and they would dip it in the perfume, and then they would wear it around. And because you didn't have a bath in your own home, you would have to go to the town bath hall. Uh, With infrequent bathing, it would be all the more important to smell nice. And so it was a very important thing, and it gave off this aroma of her delicate beauty. And so you see what's happening here. They're both choosing their most precious possessions to compare to each other. Solomon's saying, you're my mare. And she responds, yeah, well, you're my myrrh. And they both respect and cherish each other. And this should be a part of the relationship, not only vocalized, but shown through actions. And I would say before the relationship ever begins. And one of the best ways that can happen is through honoring your parents as the Lord wants us to. You know, in, in a day gone by... The parents had everything to do with the selection of a spouse because marriages were often arranged. You know, when I was single, thinking about dating and all this, arranged marriages sounded like a, sounded like a terrible idea. Now I'm a dad with two girls and I'm thinking, this is a good plan. This, this, is, this could work. And, uh, and, and yet, we, though we have the choice now, should involve our parents. What do you think of this guy? What do you think of this girl? And, and seek their wisdom because they know the world a lot better than we do. Now, and, you know, you might be going, okay, well, my parents are, are either out of my life, out of, out of the state, or they, they're not believers, or they're dead, or whatever. What do I do? I'd say, turn to the church. You know, get, bring them to a home fellowship group. Get them plugged in and, and get honest opinion of others. You know, bring them into the pastors. Let Dave Rouse sit down and grill the guy. He'll let you know if you're dating a dirtbag real quick. He'll help you take out the trash too, I bet. You know, and I would say you not only should honor your parents, but honor their parents as well. Before I ever dated my wife, Jenny, I sent her dad a letter and just said, hey, I live in a different state, but I've got to know your daughter. She's awesome. I love her. I love her heart for the Lord. And, you know, I just wanted to ask her out on a date, but I wanted to see what you thought first. I just want to tell you two things. I love Jesus, and I want to honor your daughter's purity. And if, her, if I got in the way of her relationship with God, I would never want that. And, and he gave me permission to pursue that relationship. You know, gentlemen are supposed to be the initiator. And I think we need more boys to become men and step up to the plate. And to stop leading girls on and leaving them in the wings looking for someone else to, you know, come better on the horizon. And meanwhile, they're kind of playing games with her heart. Look, if you don't see this girl as the gift of God, that prized mare to be honored and valued and and cherished, then you know what? Quite frankly, you don't deserve her. So you need to to pony up the manhood to just tell her that honestly. And uh, and once you decide this is the one to to treat well and to go, go after her, pursue her, make her feel, feel valued and classy and worth waiting for. Open the door, pay for dinner, pull your pants up. I mean, these are basic things, okay? Yeah. And they go a long way. And you know, when you get married, don't stop. Husbands, we need to continue to pursue our wives. We need to continue to make them feel valued. You know, we tend to work to win a girl. Then we get her and we kind of settle into complacency. And we need to keep being romantic and thoughtful and keep buying flowers and keep planning getaways and dates. And I'm able to talk this way because my wife's in Montana right now. Well, we need to build the relationship and continue to build on a foundation of respect. But we also need to cultivate the relationship. That's our second point this morning, cultivate. And this takes time. It takes time for a relationship to go, to grow. You know, three times in this passage, we see them dating, out doing things together. And, it, you know, it takes an investment of quality of time 
and a quantity of time to grow a relationship. If you're looking for a formula in any relationship, time spent together equals relationship growth. From our walks with God to our girlfriends to our wives, we need to spend time together. But I would caution you early on, it shouldn't be all your time. I mean, we've all had friends who, who they begin dating and just sort of drop off the radar. And none of the guy friends ever see this guy anymore. None of the girlfriends see the girl. No one sees them at church. Where are they? I don't know. They're in a field singing The Hills Are Alive with the sound of music or something. And, you know, it shouldn't be the thing where you disconnect from your accountability group and, and serving. And uh, that, that could be dangerous. But Solomon speaking, verse 15, says, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. And you might be thinking, what's with this guy? First he calls her a horse. Now she's got beady little bird eyes. And it's actually very romantic. You see, doves, although they have a binocular field of vision, they can only focus, I'm told, on one thing at a time. And so they don't have the peripheral vision like to see a lot of things at a time like we do. So Solomon's saying, you are fair, my love, my dove. He's saying, you only have eyes for me. I don't feel like you're weighing out your options and looking at the other guys. I don't feel like when we're eating and a pretty guy or a handsome guy walks by, you're like staring at him as he, as he walks around. I, he, I feel like you just are staring at me. So there's a growing commitment and exclusivity. And it should be there and growing all the way up to the point when you would say, of course, that you forsake all others and you're living only unto them as long as you both shall live. Or well, she responds in kind, verse 16. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, you're pleasant. So calling him handsome, the actual word is beautiful. But she said, I love the way you look. That's why I stare at you. Because I, I, my dove's eyes because you're beautiful, but also because you're pleasant. Now, pleasant could be translated charming or friendly. So he's not moody. He's not irritable or, or, or rude. You know, he's not snappy. He's pleasant. He's, he's a friend. And, and of course, this would help if, if you are friends. And, uh, you know, I, I think that one of the best things you could do is to marry your best friend. And, and I'm so grateful that when I met my wife, she had made a commitment to the Lord not to date for a whole year. And I met her halfway through that time, and I had made no such commitment. And, uh, and so I had to wait six months to ask her dad to, to date her. But I, I wouldn't trade it for the world because we got to become best friends. And it was right here at Calvary Albuquerque. We served together with the youth group and went on mission trips. And we became best friends and we still are to this day. Verse 16, she continues saying, Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar. Our rafters are of fir. What she's describing here is a picnic. They've gone out so outdoors, they've brought a packed lunch in the woods and they're eating it. And, and all of a sudden she looks up and he's being so kind, he's so beautiful that his kindness and warmth and romance has transformed the, the lowly, humble picnic into a beautiful palace. And she's imagining the trees make the walls and the green leafy canopy makes a, a ceiling. And he's saying that your love transforms even a meager meal into a, a, a majestic setting. And that goes to show that you don't have to spend a million bucks or have a million bucks to, to make a, a date special. You can treat that girl like a queen even if you can't afford the finer things. It just takes creativity and, and being thoughtful. When I look back to some of the dates my wife and I have been on, you know, we spend a lot of money. We, at times we've done these things, uh, operas and plays and concerts. And, and some of the most memorable is when we would, you know, buy an In-N-Out burger and go take a walk on the beach or go play laser tag and, and, and putt-putt golf. I mean, just simple, fun things. It just takes, you know, some time. And I would also say that this cultivating phase, there should be a definite spiritual aspect to the relationship. 
This should be the bedrock, really, that you're spending time in the Word together. You're spending time praying together. You're serving together. What better way to really get to know if this guy's going to be a a good dad to kids someday than by serving together in the children's ministry and seeing him around kids and going to homeless shelters and and seeing them serving. What kind of a... Are they patient? Are they rude? Are they, they, you know, if they don't get their way, how do they respond in, in leadership? How will they be able to lead a home? You should ask yourself this question. As a result of my dating this dude or this chick, am I closer to Jesus or am I being drifted further and further apart? I would also say that we have this iconic cultural clutter that every date should end with a kiss, a kiss goodbye. And I say we abandon that in the dating phase. And here's why. You know, the, 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 the end of the date kiss is the most notorious time for dragging you into to sexual sin, is it not? And I mean, that just is the worst. I mean, that lingering goodbye, being in the car, at the door. Do you want to come in? No, you don't want to come in. And, uh, and you know, it's just this whole, you know, that's the worst. So, so make it a tradition. We end every date with a prayer. And when you say amen, we high five and peace out. I mean, that's just do it. <laughs> amen. Bye. You know, and just make that a thing in your relationship. Well, the result of this investing and cultivation is verse 1 of chapter 2. She says, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. She feels so affirmed and and, and so beautiful. She's come a long way from chapter 1, verse 6, when she said, I'm dark, I'm suntanned, uh, don't look at me. Because in that day, women were pale. They tried to keep their skin pasty, powder white. And and they didn't have tans like we, we praise today and pay for today. And but now she says, I, I, because you love me so well, I feel like the prettiest flower in the field. Solomon says in verse 2, like a lily among thorns is my love among the women. So he's saying, you're not the prettiest flower in the field. You're the only flower. Every other chick's a thorn. You're, every other chick's a thistle. And uh, I love that. And, uh, and, you know, Tommy Nelson said, the devil will find someone to tell your wife that she's special and pretty if you won't. And, you know, we need as husbands to keep telling our wives that we love them, they're beautiful and and uh, many women are looking for, for attention in the wrong places because their husbands haven't told them they're pretty since their wedding day. Well, verse 3, Like an apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me, verse 4, to the banqueting table, and his banner over me was love. Now they're not at a picnic. They're at P.F. Chang's. They're at a banqueting house. He's willing to be seen publicly with her. And she says he's waving a standard of our relationship of love. That means he's willing to be seen with her. And he's willing to publicly show affection. This is so important, gentlemen. Write it down. Girls want you to show that you care about them in public, not just in private. You know, we tend to, as the relationship grows, you know, find it more difficult to be cute and cuddly and cutesy in public. When you're first dating, it's so sickly cute you could get a cavity, you know. I'm watching Nate Heitzik and Janae right now, and they're like little puppies because they're all ready to get married. And I was listening to him in California when we were there, talked to her on the cell phone, and, oh, baby, I love you, and Pookie, and I miss you, and, you know, goodbye. Oh, no, no, you say goodbye, and you say goodbye, and I'm going, I'll say goodbye. Here, done, you know. But we need to continue. My wife's always going, Levi, I wish you'd hold my hand in public. You know, I, I want you to wave your banner over me of love. But it's easy to get caught up and let the relationship become mechanical and going through the motions and soccer practice and sports and, and we stop to be cute with each other. Well, the result of this respect and this cultivating of the relationship is a need for restraint. That's our third point this morning, restraint. She says in verse 5, Sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. His left hand is under my head. His right hand is embracing me. Wow. She is basically saying, I want him. 
uh, cakes of raisins were an aphrodisiac and they thought that they held those powers. Like we would say wine, oysters, and, and chocolate. And, and so basically she's saying he's, 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 he's respected me. He's cherished me. He's promoted me. But notice he hasn't touched her. There's been no physical contact that we've read up until this point. And yet she all of a sudden is, I want to have sex with this guy. Why is that? Well, it's because a woman's greatest sex organ is her mind. She's feeling so emotionally unlocked and so loved and, and, and safe with him that she has desire to give herself to him. But he responds in verse 7. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. So he doesn't reprimand her for feeling this way. And he doesn't say it's a wrong way to feel. He says it's just not time to act on those feelings yet. You know, getting married and saying I do and putting a ring on your finger doesn't activate your sex drive. I think you know that by now. It's there. It's, it's a part of who you are. We're sexual creatures. It's not wrong to want to have sex with the person God has for you when you're not married. It's just wrong to act on those things. So Solomon says, just don't stir that up yet. You know, don't get in the car and put it in neutral and rev the engine to 6,000 RPMs when you're not going to take it for a drive around the, the block. Why go through that, you know? He's saying, let's wait And uh, notice it's Solomon who steps up to the plate to set the pace. Because the girl in a godly relationship is wired to want to give herself to a man who's doing things right. In an ungodly relationship, you have a guy giving affection to get sex and a girl giving sex to get affection. But in a godly one, often it will be the woman who has this desire for this godly man. And it's his job to say, it's not for, it's not no, it's just not for now. Let's wait. Let's wait. Let's save up. And from the beginning, there needs to be a clearly defined emphasis on purity, that you're both committed to not stirring these things up. And for the wise couple, this will definitely limit the activities that they're willing to engage in. Being alone late at night on a couch in an empty house watching a movie, not a great plan. Uh, Parked cars, bad idea. You know, bedrooms, off limits. Living together, absolutely not. Well, it's just for financial reasons. We just can't afford... No. Even if... And you go, well, we're not having sex. We're we're just different rooms. Even if I did believe that, which I don't, uh, you know, the Bible says that we should avoid the appearance of evil and maintain a good witness with our neighbors. Romans 13 says, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Because these desires are there, they're right. There's not to be acted on. You don't need to give your flesh any more than it needs. And, you know, we need to to continue to to put into practice this policy. I don't want to take from this girl anything that's meant from her husband. I don't want to take from this guy anything that's meant for his wife. If we do split up, we had a great friendship, nothing wrong with moving on into different, you know, relationships. What if you go, well, I know he's the one. God told me. He spelled it out of my lucky charms. This is the guy to marry. You know, I, I know it. So giving myself to him, it's really my husband. I would say this. Don't rob from yourself. She's not yours yet, quite frankly, until you're one flesh. And and why rob from yourself? Don't open up all your presents before Christmas Day. I think the saddest statement that could ever be made about a honeymoon is that it was just business as usual. It's supposed to be wonderful. It's supposed to be new. It's supposed to be just taking your breath away. Now, maybe today hearing all this, you're, you're feeling kind of discouraged. Because you've blown it. You hear these principles and it's like, you know, you didn't live this way. Someone last night after the message told me, I, I wish I'd heard this 38 years ago. And, you know, I've, you know, and, 
And you know what? The enemy wants you just to TiVo your failures over and over and over and over again and keep watching them and make you feel like, well, what's the point? I've already messed up so badly. I've been in and out of so many relationships. Maybe for some of you, I've been even in and out of, of marriages, not just many ones, but, but actual ones. And, and is there even any hope for me? Listen to me closely. It's never too late to do the right thing. The Bible says that God honors those who honor him. And even if you've, you've messed up, think of the children of Israel, how many times they've failed and, and over and over again. But listen, the Lord said, my, my, my mercies are new every morning. My compassions don't ever fail. It's as faithful as the tide. So if today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Ask him to forgive you, repent and, and do the first things. And know that these relationship principles uh, also apply to our relationship with the Lord. Think about it. Time spent equals relationship growth. Are you making sure to spend time dating uh, the, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ? We're the bride of Christ. We're to have dove's eyes for him. We're to spiritually, Hebrew says, run this race with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And if we're going to be growing in this relationship with him, if we're going to have any hope of, of doing good in our relationships with other people, we need to make sure that we're focusing on the priority of our relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this time in your word. And thank you so much for your great love for us. And how you not only care that we walk with you and, and enjoy our relationship with you, but you care very much about how we relate to each other. You care about our, our datings, our, our engagements, our marriages, Father. In John 2, Jesus showed up at a wedding in, in Cana of Galilee. And, and I just think of how much of a statement that makes of, of you I just see Jesus responding to an invitation, RSVPing and then showing up and his stamp of approval on marriage and how it's a good thing to desire that. I pray for these single people here. I pray that they would, Lord, as they approach dating, do so in a, in a godly way. I pray that you'd help us to seek to live lives that would make you happy. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.